All right, you ready? Got your Bibles? I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 11. We'll pick up in verse 16. If you're new here, just so you know, we travel from chapter 1 all the way through the end of a book. We take months and months and months, about half a chapter each week, and we start at chapter 1 and we read through an entire book. So when we start reading today, I guarantee you what I read to you right now will be extremely confusing because you don't know the context. But that's why you're here. So once we start the sermon, I'll give you the context, the background, and then you'll understand what it meant to them, why Paul said what he said, and what it means to us today. So just know that you're jumping in in the middle of a story. It will be confusing, but this is what we'll talk about for the rest of our time this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16 says, I say again, this is the Apostle Paul writing, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. When I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. You see a recurring theme here. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. That gives you a little bit of a sense of where we're heading. So we'll start to unravel it bit by bit. So my question as we start out this section is a simple question. What do you live for? And what gets you out of bed in the morning? You ever thought about that? Just kind of going through the routine. The alarm clock goes off and you get dressed and you have breakfast, you watch the news, you head off to work, and then you get home from work and you cook dinner, you throw the kids some food, you tuck them into bed, you fall asleep watching TV, then you do the same thing the next day. A lot of people are struggling these days to find meaning and purpose in life. And so my question is for you, what do you live for? What's your passion? Do you have one? What's your passion? I mean, what really just jazzes you? What really gets your blood pumping? It can be any number of things. What do you sacrifice for? What's worth sacrificing for? So many of us make sacrifices, but they're obligatory sacrifices. We don't really want to do them, but we do them because we have to, because we want a paycheck. So we have to make some sacrifices for work or for other things. Some people, it's athletics and your accomplishments, the list of accomplishments. If someone say, tell me something about what you've accomplished. You might say, well, hey, I ran a marathon. That's pretty awesome. I had to train for that, a sacrifice for that, and this is what I accomplished. For other people, maybe it's educational. I got a PhD. That's pretty impressive. I had to sacrifice for that. Had to put family on hold. Had to put other things on hold because that was all-encompassing. And it could be any number of things that we would list as our accomplishments that we would boast about. And they're oftentimes tied to the things we're passionate about. The things we're passionate about are the things we pursue, the things we sacrifice for. Now, what I find interesting as we get into this next section is it's very hard, and maybe you'll understand what I'm saying, it's very hard to get people to be honest about the ways that they've failed or the things that they've struggled with. Facebook is a classic example. Instagram, we put on there our shining moments, but we keep all of our blunders off of that. And in conversation, we're always so busy trying to sell ourselves to other people. We want people to like us. We want people to be impressed with us. So we spend time telling people that all we've accomplished and why they should like us because we're so good. 
and because we've done so much and we try to impress people. But to get people to be honest about their failures, we hide from those things and we hide them from others because they're embarrassing or they're humiliating or they're signs of weakness. And we're taught, don't show any weakness. It's like a dog-eat-dog world. And the last thing you want to do is show any weakness. So with that in mind, as we get into this next section of this letter, remember chapters 10 through 13 were a unique section with some really hard language. There's sarcasm. There's accusation, Paul says, about these false teachers that have come into Corinth. That's the backdrop is there have come into Corinth this city in Greece, false teachers. And they are full of boasting about their accomplishments. And Paul is put at a really uneasy position of now having to boast himself. And he's really uncomfortable with it. You ever met someone like that, that just all they do all the time is they boast about themselves? All they talk about is all the things they've done and all that they're doing. It's really uncomfortable to be around people like that. But other people are impressed by that. So the people in Corinth have had, in a sense, the wool pulled over their eyes. Now, have you heard that saying before, having the wool pulled over your eyes? That's not about sheep, although wool is about sheep. But you ever seen those pictures like the British lawyers and judges that they wear those silly looking wigs, frankly speaking, they're pretty silly looking, aren't they? But it's tradition, it's culture, and they wear these long wigs and they're made out of wool. You guys are paying attention. All right. So to have the wool pulled over your eyes is to present such a convincing argument, even if it's lying, that the judge can't see clearly to make a good decision. It's like pulling that wig down or the wool down over his eyes. Well, the people in Corinth have had the wool pulled over their eyes by the false teachers. They're presenting themselves so well and so convincingly as serving Christ that the people are buying it and they're abusing the people in the church. and They're taking advantage of the people in the church. And Paul is beside himself and that's why he's writing such hard words. So he says... I say again, verse 16, let no one think me a fool. That's what he's being accused of. The false teacher is saying that, Paul, he's a fool. And he says, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least, then receive me as a fool, then I may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. So he says, look, I'm being forced to do this. I'm not comfortable doing it. I'm gonna have to brag a little bit but this is not of the Lord. That's what he says. Bragging is not of the Lord, but he's being forced to do it. He says, this is not of the Lord. I remember a number of years ago, right after we had built this building, a guy, another pastor from somewhere come to visit. And I remember walking around here with him and all he did was just tell me all the good things that he had done. He wanted to tell me how to do ministry here. So to tell me that he knew what he was talking about, he shared with me all of the accolades, all the things he'd accomplished. He had started this program here. And he'd revive this dying church over there and just list after list of all the things he had done. And I was just frankly pretty bored with the whole thing. Like we're never gonna work together because all you are doing is telling me all the good things you've done. And it stands out, it stands out. So for Paul, the people in Corinth were telling the people all these great things. And that's what he says, verse 18, seeing that many boast according to the flesh. They're not talking about what Jesus has done. See, that's the difference. For believers, we understand it ain't us doing it. I mean, I look around here. When I walk from the office down to this building on a weekday, pick your weekday, and there's groups meeting back there. And Monday morning, I love coming Monday morning, and there's group cleaning. Some people are in the bathrooms, cleaning the bathrooms. And then there's lawnmowers running and someone's weed eating and people are cleaning toys back in the children's wing. And it is so humbling 
to watch God's people. They're like ants. You can't tell who's in charge, but everybody's just doing stuff. And it's humbling and you just go, wow, I can't take credit for this. In our lives, there should be some things we go, well, I can't take credit for this. God is doing this in my life. But many people will boast as if they've accomplished it. And that's a bad sign. But that's what Paul's up against. Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Someone else and not your own lips. If someone else happens to notice you as you're serving the Lord, then great. They say, oh, you know, you're so wonderful. You're doing this wonderfully. That's fine if someone else praises you, but just let not your own lips. So care more about hearing from other people than talking about yourself. You notice in a conversation, we often miss what the other person said because we're so busy thinking about what we're gonna say to them when they're finally done talking. So Paul's being forced to tangle with them. Verse 19, he says, for you guys in Corinth, you put up with fools gladly since you yourselves are so wise. Notice the sarcasm there. That's divine sarcasm. Oh, you guys are so wise. You're putting up with fools gladly. You put up with it. If one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. So that gives a little list about what Paul sees these false teachers doing in the church. They're there not for the church, not for the people. They're there for themselves. They're there taking advantage, charging for their services, using the people for their own benefit. They're fleecing the flock instead of feeding the flock. And it's driving Paul crazy. Why? Because he loves these people. He planted this church and now people have come in and taken it over and they're abusing the sheep that Paul saw become God's children. The sad part is they're so lost in their culture that they can't even tell who's really from God and who's not. So he says, I can't believe you guys are putting up with this. They're devouring you. In other words, you're being used by them. They're taking from you. And he says, even they're humiliating you. If one strikes you on the face, now that could be literal. It could be figurative, just insults. And remember, the church in Corinth was composed of men and women that had been slaves. The Roman Empire had six million slaves. So they're used to kind of this slave mentality of, well, maybe they have a really poor view of themselves. And now they come into church and other people are dominating over them and abusing them. They figure, well, that's just what church is supposed to be like. Paul says that is not what church is supposed to be like. Jesus said to his disciples, we don't lord it over the flock like the world does. In the world, you can get abusive bosses and people telling you what to do and people insulting you. Anybody had that at work? You had a boss that insults you or puts you down, shames you? Not in the church. There's a time when you go, you know, maybe it's time to leave this church. Have you seen abuses in church? No, we've never seen any abuses in church, right? But of course we have. We have legalistic churches. There was a shepherding movement for a long time where if you wanted to do anything, you had to check with your pastor. And this was a movement. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The shepherding movement? You experienced that? A couple of heads nodding. It's like, if I want my kids to play baseball, I got to check with the pastor. If we want to go on a vacation, we got to check with the pastor. If we want to listen to a certain music, we got to check with the pastor. It's not biblical. It's not godly. But people thought, well, this is a good thing. Somehow they construed that to be a good thing. And they were taken advantage of. Legalistic churches can be this way. I've seen tremendously abusive situations in churches. But if you think that that's all you deserve, that that's what church is about, you don't know any better. And there's guilt involved with that. 
and people are made to feel guilty. And I'm just trying to paint the picture of what's happening in Corinth. And they're buying into it and they're letting it happen to them. There comes a time when you say, this is the body of Christ. We are not putting up with this. Do you know that? You don't have to stay in the church just because your friends are there. Just because it's got a good youth program. How do you preach health, wealth, and prosperity? There's a time when you should just take out your sledgehammer and smash your TV because the voices, the mouths moving on TV are not representing God. If they're saying, well, if you don't give to this ministry, the ministry is going to go under. Well, maybe the ministry should go under. You ever thought about that? Maybe there's a time. Do you see the heart of a shepherd is to give, to care for. In chapter 12, when we move on to chapter 12, Paul's going to say to the Corinthians, from the heart kind of stuff, I didn't come there seeking what was yours, but you. I wasn't concerned with what you could do for me, Paul said. And he goes on to say, the parents are supposed to lay up, store up for the children and not the children for the parents. And he uses that as an example. Paul says, I came to you like a spiritual father and just like parents should be the ones giving and saving for their children. That's how it's supposed to work. Parents saving and giving for their children, not parents taking from their children. And Paul says, you've got it backwards. These people are like parents taking from the children. And that's wrong. So Paul is just beside himself with all of this that's going on in the church. Before I go on, notice he says in verse 21, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. Oh, he says, oh, I'm sorry. Did I do you wrong by not taking advantage of you? I'm so sorry. Well, excuse me for not beating up on you. Like, it's so funny. Some people don't think they've been to a good church service unless they leave feeling beat up and destroyed. Oh, you don't give enough. You don't serve enough. You don't go on missions enough. You don't do enough. You're not enough. You don't read enough. Ah, bleeding pastor. That was a great sermon. I feel horrible about myself. Thank you. And for some people, that's what church is about, right? That's what church has become. And that's what Paul's saying. Well, excuse me for not making you feel horrible about yourself when you are here. Oh my, what a chapter, huh? Very real. So verse 22, he begins to lay out what are the accolades that they're putting forth. Are they Hebrews? Verse 22 says, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Now you'd expect him to say, so am I, but he stops there and that's when he's gonna give his long list of the proof that he's ministering in the name of Christ. But he says, Hebrews, Israelites, he starts with his origins. Now, one quick little historical note I'm gonna give you. I won't belabor the point, but I wanna make sure you know this, that this is not just kind of a randomly put together list. If you understood the Greek educational system, they were trained in things like rhetoric and debate. And the people he's arguing with are trained in public speaking and debate. But part of that training was writing. And part of that writing training was learning to write something called, you don't have to know this, I'm just giving it to you for reference, something called an enconium. It's a style of writing that was about praise to a subject or a person. We would call it a eulogy, except the difference is a eulogy is for someone that's died. This enconium is for someone about an event or a person who's still alive. So you would just rattle off all the good things, the praises, things that they've accomplished. Maybe you could call it your resume, writing a resume. Same kind of thing. Here's all the things that would be put forth about me. So what Paul is doing is he's putting down this enconium of all the things that 
would be praiseworthy about him. And it starts with the noble origins. That would have been the first section would have been your noble origins. Where were you born? Who were you related to? And so that's why he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. That speaks of their culture and language. They would say, we're the true Hebrews. This is how we know the folks that are there are called Judaizers, which means their attempt is to come back in and bring the people away from grace back under law. They were bringing rules and regulations and rituals back in the church. And they're Jewish in origin, Jewish law keepers. So are they Hebrews? I'm a Hebrew too. Are they Israelites? That connects them to the covenants of God, the law. So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? Paul says, so am I. Paul was Jewish just as they were. And then he says, verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? Now, he already said these guys are ministers of Satan. He already said that back in the end of last chapter. So he knows they're not, but they say that they are. So they say they're ministers of Christ. Paul would say, so am I, and let me prove it to you. And he's going to show the difference. Now, what could Paul write? You guys, some of you know the apostle Paul, what he'd done and what he's been involved in. He could say, I've ministered to more people. I've traveled more miles. I've planted more churches. I'm a church growth expert. I've written more books. He could say all these great accolades, all the things that he's done, but he doesn't. He gives this brilliant twist because remember, he's being forced to boast, to brag. So he's going to do it, but he's going to do it in a unique way. Watch what he does. So as he begins to brag, he says, I speak as a fool. Here it comes. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, not in the psychedelic sense. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, He could have just said in perils everywhere, in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Just stop right there. That's his resume. Here's my resume. You want to see the proof that I'm a minister of Christ? Here it is. So he's going to brag, but he's not going to brag about all of his accomplishments. He's going to brag about his suffering. See, for Paul, the real proof of ministry was never how big the church was or did he wear expensive suits? Did he have a Learjet? How many thousand people followed his podcast? That was never it for Paul. For Paul, the ultimate proof of discipleship of Jesus Christ is not prosperity, but suffering. Suffering. Remember I asked at the beginning, what have you found that's worth living for? What have you found in your life that's worth sacrificing for? And a better question is, what have you found that's worth dying for. Now, many people have asked me about my trip to Hong Kong, and I met a lot of amazing people. We were at a, uh, the inauguration of a new seminary in Hong Kong, and about 800 people there from Taiwan, the Philippines, Hong Kong, and China. And there was a row of people that someone pulled me aside and said, you see that row of people? Yeah. So they're here listening to see if any anti-Chinese things are said. So they're just listening. There's always ears. And the Chinese people have been through a lot of very difficult persecution. So I'm working with this woman who just recently was kicked out of China because she works for Campus Crusade for Christ in China. She's an evangelist and she just got 
kicked out. She lives in California now, and she went back to Hong Kong as a translator for our team. And I got to sit and listen to how she became a Christian. Now, her father was a pastor, or still is a pastor, a house church pastor. Her grandfather was a Christian during the Chinese Revolution and was imprisoned and was humiliated for his faith. And she was debating about her own faith. And I'll keep the story brief. She ends up going to college. At college, she meets a woman who lives alone outside of her university city. She begins to disciple this friend of mine from China. And what she comes to find out is this was the daughter of the most famous evangelist that ever lived in China, a guy named Dr. Sung. He was the most well-known Chinese evangelist in history. And this was one of his daughters, and she had spent 20 years in prison. And she had just gotten out recently, and the Chinese government said, you can live right here, but don't go anywhere. She had a little dirt floor house. And this is what was remarkable about it, because she talked about how she actually came to faith in Jesus. And she said, you know, I saw my dad suffer for Jesus. And I saw my grandfather suffer for God. And now I meet this woman, and she's been in prison. No complaints, no bitterness, in prison for 20 years for her faith. And I said to myself, this is what she said, I said to myself, if this God is worth suffering for like that, I should probably get to know him. He's probably pretty important to know if people are willing to suffer for him. Now, what do you do with health, wealth, prosperity doctrine? You know, the doctrine that says God intends for you to be rich and have nice cars and fancy clothes and all that. That doesn't preach around the world. You know that, right? That's an American thing. You can't preach that to the Dalit caste in India who are getting saved by the millions, by the way. So it's very unique here. So Paul lays out what people are looking for is not, are you willing to follow God when it's easy? But is he worth being passionate about when it's hard? We've just lowered the bar so much, haven't we? We look outside and, oh, it's raining. I don't know if God would want me to be wet. I'm going to skip church today. That couldn't be of the Lord. It's not trying to make you guys feel guilty, but I'm saying, look, I didn't write this. Paul lays out, this is his life. This is what he's endured, believing that it's worth it. So let's start to look this through. Some of these things are things that would have been culturally not impressive. In other words, he starts out with, in labor is more abundant. Now, a person in the Greek culture, labor was not thought of as an honorable thing. I think we live in a culture that says hard work is an honorable thing. But for them, if you had to work with your hands, that was dishonorable. That was only for low people. High people had slaves to do the work. So Paul says, I labored more abundantly. And in doing that, he's lowering himself. And that's not something you'd put on your resume. That's like saying, I failed out of eighth grade. I'm a nobody. So Paul supported himself. He worked with his hands. He says, in stripes above measure. Now, that doesn't speak of his wardrobe, stripes versus plaid. He's not talking about stripes. You know what kind of stripes he's talking about, right? Being beaten with the cat of nine tails or the flagellum it had three prongs. And Jesus was one time he went through that. He was beaten that way. Paul says, he says, in stripes above measure, I can't even count the times that I've been beaten. Imagine that. I've been beaten so many times I can't, I lost counts. In Galatians 6, 17, Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And I imagined traveling with the apostle Paul, maybe sharing a hotel room and there you are getting ready for bed at night and Paul's getting into his pajamas and you see him take off his shirt and there's his back just full of scars. Talk about for us, wow. 
you have endured so much for your faith. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently. Now remember, in the book of Acts, this Paul wrote this letter before Acts chapter 20. So the only imprisonment we know about from the book of Acts is when he's in prison in Philippi with Silas. Remember, they're singing praises to the Lord at midnight and the prison doors fly open. Well, so evidently, we don't have all that happened in Paul's life in the book of Acts because he says, in prisons more frequently. So prison was a regular part of his life. In deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, probably being formally charged as a blasphemer for teaching about grace. Five times, 40 stripes. That's again, that cat of nine tails, the three-pronged piece of equipment that they used to inflict a beating on somebody. Three times I was beaten with rods. Now that's a different kind of beating as if one kind of beating is any better than another. This is a caning or like a bamboo piece that would be beaten with. Now here's a little piece of political and historical information. In that day, those that inflicted that kind of punishment would carry around a bundle of sticks with an ax in the middle because they also would be in charge of beheading. If that was your lot in life to be beheaded, they would do that. But the punishment was caning or being beaten with rods. They would carry their little wares around with them. The ax bundled in the sticks and that was called a fasces from a word that means bundle of sticks. And it's a direct derivative of where we get our word fascism. So if you ever see the fascist symbol is a bundle of sticks with an ax hanging out, that was the name for the people that inflicted the beating with rods in the days of the Apostle Paul. That is absolutely free information. Nobody plays Trivial Pursuit anymore, but it would have been handy for that. Just so you know, just so you know. Paul says, once I was stoned, Acts chapter 14, I mean, this is the way they inflict punishment still in the Middle East at times. This was throwing stones at you until you die. That doesn't sound pleasant. So they stone Paul. They think he's dead. They drag his limp body out of the city and they leave him for dead. His disciples are around Paul going, man, you know, now what? And Paul's eyes pop open. He wakes up and he says, hey, what are you guys all looking at? Let's get back in the city. We got work to do. That's crazy, right? I was was stoned. Can any of you guys say that? If Paul's at my church and he's saying, I'm going to lead a mission trip. Anybody want to go? I'm like, yeah, sorry, Paul. (laughs) So this could be, this stoning could be the event that led to his visions that he's going to share in the next chapter, chapter 12. Look at this. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. He travels more than 10,000 miles. 6,500 of those miles approximately are by boat. And boats crash. At least in those days they did. Still in our day a little bit, but a lot of boat accidents. Paul ends up shipwrecked three times. This is before we get to the shipwreck in the book of Acts. So at least four times the guy's been shipwrecked as he's out taking the gospel to various places. Now, my first flight to Hong Kong, 16 hours, and we get on the plane and we're stalled there. And then we get off the plane because somebody forgot to do something. And then we get back on the plane and we taxi down the runway and then something else happens. And then we have to taxi back and get off the plane again. And then they're going to try to switch crews and then we're going to go to San Francisco. But to do that, we got to unload some of the gas because we have too much gas because we're gassed up for an overseas flight. And so one thing after another, and then finally a few hours later, they said, well, we're just canceling the flight. And that's what I said. Oh man. So I'll read what's coming up next Sunday. And I read this. I said, oh, I repent. I repent. I'm thinking, oh, my plane is canceled. 
maybe I'm not supposed to go to Hong Kong. So maybe this is not of the Lord. I mean, imagine Paul, he's there floating in the sea a night and a day. I'm wondering if he's going, is this really my call in life? It's lonely, it's dark. He's subject to hypothermia, the Aegean Sea, 60 to 77 degrees, your body temperature, 98.6. Even if you're in 80 degree water, which is wonderful to swim in, isn't it? In time, in less than 24 hours, you're getting hypothermia because it's sucking heat from your body. So Paul is there floating in the sea. You think he didn't ever wonder, what in the world am I doing? But remember, he had a vision of heaven, chapter 12. I think that had a lot to do with getting him through. When you know what's coming, he could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not worried about being dead. Are you? I'm not worried about being dead. The process of becoming dead is a little more worrisome to me, especially if you travel with the Apostle Paul. But these are the scars. This is his resume for apostleship. These are his battle wounds. In journeys often, he was always on the road, guest room to guest room, nowhere to call home. In perils of waters or flooded river crossings, perils of robbers, dangerous gangs on the road. In perils of my own countrymen and in perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils among, notice, false brethren. That's a direct reference to the people in Corinth that here are coming against him. What a perilous life. You know, some people get into Christianity because they think, oh, that's going to be an easy life. I'm sorry if someone told you that. Being a Christian is not a glorious life. It's not always an easy life. We have it pretty good in America, don't we? And I think we should never take that for granted. But it was perilous for the Apostle Paul. In most of history, it's been very perilous to be a Christian. So what you get in history the only people that really become Christians are the people that are serious about knowing God and believing in God. See, right now it's very easy. We become a Christian because, well, I just need a little help in my life. And it's very easy to be a Christian. If you can't be a Christian now, I mean, it's never been easier to become a Christian, to say, I believe, and to not face all of the persecution. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? We're feeling great, Pastor. This is wonderful. We get to read the Bible because of People like Wycliffe sacrificed their lives, the cost. But man, when you get a hold of something in your life that's not just worth living for, but that's worth dying for, my reason to get up in the morning because you make widgets for a living. And where's the meaning in that? Where's the value in that? I make widgets. But if I make widgets for Jesus, then that's different, isn't it? When I teach in the high school for Jesus, when I help patients, when I change diapers, when I do this, when I do that, when I crunch numbers, and it's for Jesus, that's different. And I can have passion, a passionate, crazy love for him because he's got a passionate love for me. And that gives you something to suffer for, doesn't it? Not something to just live for, but something to die for. In weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, Paul had insomnia, had a hard time sleeping at night. Why? Because of all the pain he'd been through. Maybe he had achy joints. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You lay down and lay, oh, this aches and that aches. I mean, you don't go through what he went through and not suffer in your body for that. In sleeplessness often, in hunger, thirst, in fastings often, in cold. That's what I mentioned about being in the deep. And in nakedness, times when he was stripped down to his naked body and left in a prison cell. Paul talks about to the Corinthians, and you've quoted it, 
he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You've probably quoted that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in the context in Philippians, Paul says, I've learned to have and I've learned to be without. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul experienced hunger and thirst. We have whole pantries full of food. But Paul says, there were days when for a couple of weeks I didn't eat, didn't know what was coming. In fastings often, cold and nakedness. And then he says, verse 28, uh, besides the other things, <laughs> like that's not everything, there's more. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So Paul says, look, those are all physical sufferings. For me, that's the easy part. The hard part is the mental, the emotional suffering because I care so deeply for all the churches I planted. And only really, I think pastors can understand that. Greater than all the physical sufferings, the beatings and the stonings and all that stuff, Paul says, what really wears upon me every day is how are the people in the church doing? People trying to bring legalism back in, people taking advantage of, because he'd plant a church and he'd move on. And he had a deep care for people. And what a contrast to the ministers that were there taking from the people. Just know that. I'm so thankful for that model I've been handed in ministry. The ministry doesn't exist to be served by the people, but to serve people. Some people have not got that at church. That church has been all about what can you do for the ministry? What can you do for the ministry? What can you do for the church? And that's all part of it. But the essence of the heart of a shepherd is the deep concern for people all the churches. And as pastors, we just, we care so much about people. And then you, oh, you, know, you hear somebody left the church or somebody is upset and they didn't come tell you. And, and it's like, wow, those things eat at us day and night. And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. Like Pastor Steve's gonna be in counseling if we ever leave the church. That's not true. <laughs> but we care. We care. A real shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what Paul is saying. And you got to know, look, you may not be here for church all the time. You may end up moving or going somewhere else. And that's cool. You're free to do that. But don't get into a ministry where the pastorate takes advantage of you. You're being equipped right now for whatever comes next in your Christian life to know the difference between people who represent Christ and people who don't. Don't get involved in somewhere. Don't follow some ministry. Don't send money to some place where they're just taking advantage of you. Are we cool with that? You with me in that? That's what Paul's saying. Besides this, all the concerns for all the churches that come upon me every day. He says, verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Paul says, who is weak and I am not weak? He connects with people's weakness. That's why he shares all that he does. He connects with people that are weak. Others take advantage of people's weakness. Paul says, I'm weak too. Don't you love that when other people are willing to be transparent about their weakness? I mean, look, let's be honest. We invite people to church and we spend so much time trying to hide our weaknesses, don't we? So much time trying to say, I'm a Christian. I've got my act together. I've got my good act together face on in church. I pray all the time. Oh, I was up at 4 a.m. praying for you this morning. We just put out there all this high stuff and we present ourselves a certain way. And then what happens is other people go, wow, I'm a loser. I guess there's really no place for me. There's people hanging on by a thread in the world. And they say, you know, maybe I can find a place in this thing called church. I've heard about a, a loving God 
and I want to go see. And then they, they know their life's a mess. And they know they don't have it all together. And so they come in and then they meet us. And what do they meet when they meet us? Do they meet a group of people who all we talk about is how much we have our act together, how great our lives are and how we've got it all figured out? Or do they meet people who are honest and say, you know, here's my weakness. How was your day? How's your morning going? Uh, you know, frankly, I've had a rough day today. It's been a rough week. It's been a rough month. It's been a rough year. Anybody had a rough year this year? I had a couple of rough years. Who is weak, Paul says, and I am not weak. I love to get pastors together. And when you get pastors together, all they want to talk about is how great their churches are and how much they've done and how their church has grown and all their successes. But when you get pastors down below that and you say, tell me about how you failed, the tension in the room changes, doesn't it? When you talk about your weaknesses, the room changes because people go, wow, I'm free to be weak too. And that is so, let me say it, that is so freeing, isn't it? When we can be in church and we can say, we know, we are thankful that the Lord uses the weak and the ignoble, the low to confound the wise. Praise the Lord that we are not people who have our acts together. We're people that, no, we don't. That's why we're here. Why do we hide from that fact? Who's weak and I'm not weak? Paul empathizes. Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? You think Paul didn't care when his people were getting beat up on by these quote-unquote pastors, ministers, false apostles? Paul says, look, he wraps it up, verse 30. If I must boast, if I'm going to have to go there with you, I'm going to boast in the things which concern my infirmity, my weakness. And that's rare. In our day and age, we spend so much time trying to sell ourselves to others, trying to convince people we're so great and we're so awesome and we know so much and we're such great Christians. And Paul says, you know what? If I'm going to boast, if I got to boast, here's how I'm going to twist it around. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses and not my accomplishments. Isn't that freeing? Is it just me? Do you guys feel like, wow, it's safe to say, I don't have it together. You know, churches, like this is so cool. We were recording our announcements for a little while, very little while, and Shane was recording the announcements. I don't know if you remember that. Then this one week, they had a blooper reel because as he was recording them, he'd make a mistake. And we put the blooper reel up and we showed it and everybody loved it. And the whole nature, the atmosphere of the room changed because what we saw is the unfiltered life that is often hidden from most people. So you saw Shane make all his blunders and we just connected at that moment. Or when Nick forgets words or when the, the screen isn't working, we're reminded that, listen carefully, and then we're almost done. What we are largely exposed to with the internet, social media, we are exposed to filtered lives. We are exposed to things that have been airbrushed, things that have been doctored and tempered. So you only see what other people want you to see. So we have this false reality that everybody's together and everybody looks like that all the time and everybody does that all the time. And that's why we love it so much when people present their bloopers. And that's what Paul says. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to present my bloopers. And that changes the nature of a congregation because so many churches nowadays are into professionalism. The church has become a professional business and we got the whole service timed down to a minute and everything has to happen just according to plan. So I love it when we mess up. I love it when I mess up. Because then you go, wow, the pastor's real. Yeah, your pastor's real. So it's just a blessing to be able to say, you know what? We're just a group of people that love the Lord 
trying to figure out how to live this life and thankful for grace. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about the things which concern my infirmity. Put some of that stuff on your Facebook page. So watch what he does. He gives one final story to demonstrate this. The God, verse 31, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. And he says, I'm going to boast because I told Luke this story. In the book of Acts, you can read this story. Verse 32, in Damascus, the governor under Aratus the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes, the people of Damascus, with a garrison, an army, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So it's as if Paul is saying, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. And here's an example that ministry is not all that glorious. In my early days of ministry, there was a situation where I was going to be arrested and I didn't face it with courage. Instead, they let me down through a wall, a hole in a wall, in a basket. So picture the Apostle Paul. There he is in a basket, in a laundry basket. His knees are folded up and they're lowering him down as he's escaping under cover of night in a laundry basket. Lowering him down and he's just there going, this is so humiliating. I am so humiliated right now. And he puts it on his Facebook page. Here's an example of ministry. I could tell you stories. We're not professionals. And it's a beautiful thing to get people to share their weaknesses with each other. If you do that with each other, if you guys are honest with each other about the difficulties, your own weaknesses, you change the nature of this church. People will feel like, wow, maybe I do fit in here. Because if people come in and they're struggling and they know they're a mess and they meet you and you got your act, all you tell about is all the good things you've done, all your success stories, your highlight reel, then they're going, you know, I guess there's no room for me here. All these people are perfect. So if you're going to boast, you got some embarrassing moments, I dare you. I dare you to put an embarrassing moment on your Facebook page. What would that look like? What would that look like to do that? Well, there was a time and this is what happened to me today. I burnt the dinner. I burnt Thanksgiving. If you burn your Thanksgiving turkey, put it on Facebook. Look at me. I burnt Thanksgiving dinner. Praise the Lord. I'm a mess. I don't know how to cook. (laughs) But I'm trying and it's okay. Oh, God is good, isn't he? Aren't we glad that he doesn't just accept perfect people? He doesn't just use perfect people. But he does call us to suffer for his sake. And he's worth it. 